Hello, this is part three of Diminishing Returns, Quentin Tarantino season. One quick word of note, we recorded this before the recent news that Chris Pines and Chris Hemsworth's involvement in the next Star Trek film is now somewhat in doubt. We'll see, won't we? Other than that, though, the conversation's pretty timeless. Obviously, there's spoilers for Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight in this one, though we do keep the Hateful Eight spoilers to a minimum. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. This is part three of a trilogy of Tarantino-based episodes in which we're looking at the entirety of his career. So if you're interested in that, you can go back to the last two weeks and listen to those first. You can just listen to this one if you're interested in in Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, or The Hateful Eight. Because that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, I am Alan Turing. With me, as always, is Saul Harris. There's such disdain in your voice as you were listing those films. <laughs> no, it was just, that was actually me trying to remember the titles. <laughs> no disdain. Hello, I'm Sol. Hello, uh, and as a special guest this week, we've got Derek Akora. Um, who, who, who can you do a Derek Akora impression, Sol? Creed. What? Watch, uh, <laughs> watch that, Kez. Watch that. There's a soldier on the wall. He's a scout. Kez. He's a scout. It is Kez, isn't it? No. Come on, <laughs> out, Kez. Go on, join down the mine. What's the name of his oh. like little friend? I'm an impoverished working class young man. It's <laughs> Derek, Derek Akora. He's called Sam? Sam I is think. his spirit guy. Oh, yeah. Sam! Guy. What's Kez? The fucking Kestrel! Kez is a Ken Loach film about a boy and a, a like a bird of prey a kestrel, that he yeah. takes in. <laughs> and at the end he goes down the mine to be with the other miners in the 60s. <laughs> oh. Definitely not that. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I was going to do a joke about contacting the dead. So, <laughs> oh right, oh no. Derek Akora, I'll do the impression. Okay, yeah, spirit world, Sam, my spirit guide. We would be very much obliged if you could put us in contact with Calvin, the dead podcaster. That's that's uh, Derek Akora. Hello. I am Calvin. Oh no, we've we've seemed to have come through to Scottish Bond. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was my Bella Lugosi impression. Actually, I was I was channeling Dracula coming out of the coffin. Uh, okay, well, as we know, Calvin died some weeks ago. But did he, he actually die? Us... Or yes, were we all watching his funeral? But he was actually still alive because it was actually not Calvin in the coffin, but a different C. Dyson. And he was wearing a mask. <laughs> Just a CD on the coffin. Yeah, they put a Calvin <laughs> mask on it, on the guy who actually got killed. <laughs> it, was a, um, it was a close one, that's for sure. <laughs> He's actually been in a coma, uh, but he, he woke up randomly, regained the use of his toes. And uh, mm. is now back. And for- fortunately, I'll be conscious for at least another few hours while we record this, and then I think I might be slipping into a coma again for a month or so. Uh, so, so let's just uh, clarify this. Calvin, you are back. 
Yes, yes. Thank you very much for having me back to talk about one of my favourite films of all time, actually, in this uh, trio of uh, films we're covering. But thank you so much. It's it's nice to know that there's no good hook. That's a good hook. We don't. Oh no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not giving away which one. But it's nice to know that there's no bad blood between us and that it's all (laughs) fine now. Finally. (laughs) We did have to have the uh, the uh, marriage counsellors in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think we all learned a bit about each other. We apologise. <laughs> oh, We've been seeing other people, Calvin, I want you to know. Oh, dear. Oh. I, hear, I hear one of them was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Only one of them. We don't have many female friends. Still 100% white, though, so that's okay. <laughs> For context, can we can we hear your thoughts very broad brush strokes for Tarantino's career up until uh, mm. where we start with this episode? So, um, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Reservoir Dogs is uh, fine. Um, six out of ten. Uh, what else do you do? Pulp Fiction. I've never really connected with it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, but seven out of ten. Okay. I think it's it, it it is remarkable, and I think a lot of the story, you know, little stories would probably work better if they were just like twenty minutes on their own. But, mm. uh, Jackie Brown, have you seen that one? Not seen that one. Uh, Kill Bill. Oh, um, uh, Vol One or Two, or are we counting them all as one uh, film? Well, if you have different opinions about one and two, then I guess. Well, I I, up, but... I quite like part one. I'd probably give that a well, actually, yeah, seven out of ten again. But then part two, I really didn't like. Probably five out of ten. Four mm. out of ten. Four out of ten. Uh, Death Proof. This is what I'm intrigued to hear about. Because you could go so... I mean, you're someone who could go anywhere from like one to nine out of ten. Or <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, it would be an eight out of ten for me. What? Really? Uh, my... my Probably either second or third favourite Quentin Tarantino film. I really, really like Death Proof. Do you have any broad strokes about Tarantino as a man, as a filmmaker, before we get into this? Or Um, hmm, sure. I mean, I, I, I love him when he's on a talk show, or if I find a YouTube video where he's on, like, a roundtable debate sort of thing, he's, he's great. I mean, do you love him in a an ironic, hilarious sense, or in a you-actually-think-he's-quite-well-spoken-and-thought-through? Because, I, I, personally, I... I used to love him on a sort of ironic sense, like I just found him hilarious, but I've been digging up all these clips and watching stuff as part of preparation for this, and I've I've come to really quite respect him. Like, he actually talks a lot of well-reasoned sense. If you can kind of cut through his bad social skills, I think he actually... <laughs> I think it's a bit of both for me. Like, he's, he's very well... Um read up on films certainly i think mm. i don't necessarily agree with everything that he says but mm. uh as a like broadly speaking our, our thoughts were he had a very strong debut he was a very interesting voice of a generation filmmaker and then his career just started to decline a bit and he became increasingly more self-indulgent as he got more money to play with and more freedom, mm. kind of George Lucas a bit, kind of hit a low point in his career, although personally I would much rather watch Death Proof than Reservoir Dogs, but that's just me. Um, no, no, not just you. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's kind of where we're at now, and I, I spoke about this last week, how I remember it, him being quite a divisive figure when I 
got to university and because at the time you know a lot of people go oh not tarantino his next you know he just made death proof his next film's a remake of bloody inglorious bastards that old italian film he's got he's out of original ideas <laughs> yeah and so, sorry sorry what that old italian film as if anyone had heard of it yeah, yeah no one knew about, about it until he was quote unquote remaking it but i think my point is there was a lot of uh-huh. confusion of, a lot of people just thought he was remaking an old film which he wasn't he, he just cribbed the mm. title <laughs> um yeah. Yeah, then this film came out in Glorious Bastards, and mm. I mean, part of why we separated this out into um, the third part of his career, I think it marks a monumental turning point in Tarantino's career. Or is, I, mm. I don't know, turning point might not quite be the right word. I wish it was a turning point, but I think it marks a very distinct point. Um, in one of the previous episodes, we spoke about how Tarantino flitters between making sort of real films, and then films that are almost parody and only a, a notch or two away from just spoofing something. And I think Inglorious Bastards is very much a real film. It is... I'm gonna have to basically lay my cards out, but I think Inglorious Bastards is... Mm, do I? Yeah, no, I do. I think Inglorious Bastards is the best thing Tarantino's ever made. I, I think mm. it is an absolute... His his line at the end, uh, through the voice of Brad Pitt. I think this just might be my masterpiece. This film is the culmination of everything he'd been working towards in his career. Every bit of talent that he had had kind of just crescendos here and reaches its peak, and it's it's kind of not self-indulgent to the point that it ruins it. It's it's reined in, it's reasoned, it's measured, it's I, I think this film is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you. I think this is obviously the one that um, I said is one of my fav- very, very favourite films. Mm. I think it's... And I never really thought... Because Tarantino, I never really... I like Death Proof, but I've never really connected that strongly with his work. Uh, and I, I'm a bit of a sucker for... Uh, you know, a period, 1940s mm. setting, and I like the kind of spy angle to this film, and World War Two. I've never considered that, but yeah. Um, but yeah, and uh, it's, um, yeah, I think the two main parallel stories work really well. You kind of have the bastards mm. on one side of the film, and then, um, what's the name? Shoshana? Shoshana? Yes. yes. Yeah, you have Shoshana on the other side um, with her more personal story. Both of them work really well for me. Mm. I think the cast are all superb. I'm sure we'll get more into detail on that. Um, But yeah, just one of my very favourite films. I love it. Yeah. And now a a rebuttal from Alan Turing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's just be clear. I didn't dislike the film. (laughs) Um, But I enjoyed the film, but there was something about it that I just felt it left me cold. Like, I didn't connect with it, and I'm not entirely sure why mm. that is. But there's definitely some sort of emotional connection that I wasn't That's getting. And it's interesting, particularly because Calvin just said he usually doesn't get Tarantino, and this time he felt he did. Yeah, well, mm. I, I was going to say something similar. Yeah, I up until this point in his career, this is the film that made me really love Quentin Tarantino and think mm. the hell of Likewise. out of him. Like I used to think, oh, he's that guy who made Pulp Fiction and some other stuff that's kind of alright to not great, depending on you know what you're talking about. And I remember going to see this film, not 
expecting the world, and I remember falling in love with it within about three seconds as the green leaves of summer began playing and the credits mm. just started coming up on screen. And I was just... I, I honestly, I don't think I've ever quite had a film experience like that where I'm just won over, like, as if something just hit me over the head and I was just... I, I was in love with it from the first few seconds. It's this incredible piece of music, like, really powerful just sets the tone so perfectly but then it there's nothing about that bit of music that should evoke anything of this film and yet it does i fell in love with the credits the credits themselves i've spoken about the credits in his film it just sets sets you down to begin this film and then you get chapter one uh oh, this yes. this is a film i mean he's written films in chapters before but this is, we, we mentioned in the first episode we did on Tarantino that um, he's got a fetish for telling things out of chronological order and how in his earlier work it does just kind of feel, I don't mean this as bad as it probably sounds, but it feels a bit student filmy. It just kind of feels like, oh, that's a nice way to make it more interesting. Just put mm. it out of order. And to be fair, Kill Bill kind of was inching towards this, but I think Inglorious Bastards is told out of chronological order to some extent. Uh, it's told in individual chapters, but the way it's written is remarkable. Each chapter is basically a self-contained short film, but then they all follow on and set things up and come together to form this absolutely wonderful narrative. I don't know. I, I And yes, chapter one, Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France. Hmm. It's probably the most iconic part of the film, I would say, to the... Well, it's cer certainly um, an introduction to Christoph Waltz yes. for m the yes. mainstream audience. I don't know if anyone had heard of him before this film, which he won an Oscar for, I believe. Yeah, no one outside of um, German-speaking countries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, he he. This film discovered him and and threw him forward, projected him up onto the, you know. But he, there is something just magnetic about him. It is like oh, God, there's yeah. a certain mm. sort of it's an it's a je ne sais quoi of of film stars that there's mm. just something about them. Brad Pitt has it as well. So yeah. just in the same film. Um, but yeah, not just a good actor, but just something that you're drawn to him, which is particularly mm. good for this character because it's such an evil character. Yeah. That, but we mm. have to kind of like him to a certain extent. We have to go along mm. with him. If he was just a mm. straight out bad guy, you'd just go, "Oh, I hope they kill him. I hope they kill him." It just it, it gives it that little bit of gray area. Even though he everything he does is terrible, but you still mm. kind of like him a little bit. He's like a, such an intriguing mm. character. Now, I, I rewatched this um, along with all the other films for this podcast, but. Um, what really struck me on this particular viewing, what really struck me for the first time is how European this film feels in its sensibilities. And mm, mm. I can only assume it's because Tarantino's watched so many European films himself mm. that he kind of took on an attitude of, oh, it's set in Europe, so we're just going to emulate European cinema. The end result is this feels really authentic like a real i don't know like a legitimate piece of cinema that doesn't necessarily feel like a quentin tarantino film all the way through there are moments when it absolutely does but there are moments when you could tell me this was a classic one of the american film institutes you know 100 greatest films of all time or something like it it just made by some director i didn't 
particularly know the work of. It just feels like a mm. very... And this has his DNA, his fingerprints all over it, but it feels like its own sincere, standalone piece of art. It feels like a real mm. film, like I say. that There's maybe two or three moments where I think he crosses the line and oversteps that, and it does feel a bit like, come on, rain it back, mm. man. But there, you know, you're talking about two or three minutes in a two and a half hour film. Um, mm. Most of it, I just think, is phenomenal. No, no, I completely agree. It feels like a film by a grown-up yeah, instead yeah. of his previous films that feel like someone kind of fresh out of film school. Or someone very talented fresh out of film school, for sure. Yeah. But um, it feels like someone who's a bit more mature and world-weary and has learnt a lot and is happier to have a, maybe a bit of a slower pace. Yeah. Or um, I, I, I'm not sure what, but the sensibility just yeah. strikes me as more mature. I know, I completely agree. Um, well, I, I, I remember when this came out, my takeaway was, oh, everyone agrees this is a remarkable piece of work and it's a really great film. And I've I've been going back, reading reviews of these films, looking at how they were received, and it, it's not... This doesn't seem to have quite withstood the test of time like it deserves to. Like, yeah, if you look at ratings and things, people prefer Django Unchained. Um, it, it's... Mm. And and I was looking into it, and most reviews dismiss it as being a very superficial revenge film, like almost all of Tarantino's films. And I personally, I, mm. I think that couldn't be further from the truth. I think there is a hell of a lot going on in this film. I think there is a great deal of meaning and subtext, which is, I think, part mm. of why this works for me in a way that most of Tarantino's films don't. I think that the likes of Kill Bill, whilst I do like them, don't necessarily have that much going on beneath um, mm, yeah. superficial stuff where I think this film does I think there's meaning to it yeah I'll give you that it does feel like there's something deeper going on here which you don't really get with Tarantino I mean especially when you look at like from an American standpoint I mean you look at the Americans in this film the bastards are kind of <laughs> I don't know if they're not exactly cool action heroes oh, God. Uh, for I the mean, most part this is again something that I didn't know at the time but it's impossible for me to not like Almost all of the bastards are sitcom writers from America. They're almost like there's B.J. Novak, who's best known for mm. playing Ryan on The Office, but it, you know he was a writer on The American The Office as well. He's a sitcom writer. Yeah. There's Paul Rust, mm. who again is a sitcom writer. He worked on season four of Arrested Deve- uh, Development. He um, mm. he got his own show, Love, which was uh, just finished on Netflix recently. There's Sam Levine, who is probably best known for being one of the little kids in Freaks and Geeks. And then there's Eli Roth, Quentin's buddy, who, you know, is a director. But that role was originally for Adam Sandler. Oh, really? My research. Yeah. <laughs> but he chose to do um, well, funny people instead. Yeah. The the opening scene, which, like you said, but that 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 could just be a short film in of itself. But that but that one is much more emotionally impactful. That first yeah. scene, and it's set, and which is great. It sets up the whole film. Where the one later on is just much more tense. It's got that kind of action yeah. build up. It's got mm. this big this big dramatic finish. Yeah. Yeah. The mm. first scene is the one that most people pulled out as their go-to, oh my god, that scene. Um, And still, you know, that's the scene people talk about. Honestly, I think it's one of the weaker scenes in the film. That's not to say it isn't utterly brilliant, because it is, but... Oh, it's fantastic. But when I compare that to, like you say, the tavern scene and these other scenes, Mm. I... Oh my god, I think... Basically, I think the other scenes are underrated. I I think they're just incredibly well-crafted. Like, Mm. this is a film at the level where it 
depresses me to watch because it's someone operating on a level of artistry that I could never even like wish to achieve. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mo- most mm. times when I watch yeah. a film, I feel like, yeah, if I had, you know, $30 million, I could do that. I could probably do it better. <laughs> <laughs> when I watch this, I am just in like awe of the talent being demonstrated behind the camera mm. and and in front of the camera it just do you know what i think um just to, to i've been thinking about this I th- perhaps one of the reasons i don't really get into this film is the the shoshana the shoshana storyline melanie Laurent's kind of character bit i don't think i'm that bothered about that i don't think I'm, for some reason i don't get invested in that character and mm. i think i need to hmm. to be able to get so and it, she's she does a great performance but i just don't find the character very engaging yeah I'll, I'll give you again, that. I'm not. I, I can't really give you much more reason why, <laughs> but um, mm. I don't know why I'm not. And I think that's important to for the emotional through line of that kind of reve- the real personal revenge. Well, this might be it. Actually, yeah. I I'm not massively convinced by that character, and I agree. Like that that would be the emotional backbone of the film. But to me, I think for me this isn't really much of an emotional film for me this is very much a meta technical exercise in cinema it's it's like something like adaptation stuff like charlie kaufman writes for me it isn't like a an emotional oscar drama about the holocaust it's it's a deconstruction of cinema and our relationship with art and so i i don't really need it to operate on that sort of an emotional level for me to appreciate it. But I kind of agree with you and what you're getting at. And I think maybe that's why people haven't um, stuck with this as being quite the masterpiece that they initially were calling it to be, that I think mm. it rightfully is. Because, yeah, I, I kind of agree. It is a bit emotionally cold. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's why I just don't quite get it. I don't think this film's interested on the human level. I don't think that's what it's about or what it's trying to... Yeah, no, I I mean, it's not Schindler's List. We're not supposed to cry for Shoshana when her family are, like, shot up uh, beneath the floorboards or Mm. anything. And and I think, like, personally, I think that the main reason this film isn't as respected as I think it should be is uh, I get the impression, looking back at reviews of it and so on, a lot of people just completely misread it or don't get it. I mean, I don't want to sound like a... Well, most reviews just dismiss it as a cold, heartless revenge movie. Like, at best they say it's catharsis, and there certainly is an element that's meant to be, you know, catharsis for taking revenge against the Nazis in a, you know, escapist way that wasn't allowed to the the Jews in real life. But Mm -hmm. I think the film's got a lot more going on than that. I think it's that, but you, you you kind of I think most people stop there and you need to keep going because this film like the point of this film, certainly as far as I'm concerned, is about the relationship between reality and art and the way that you can rewrite history through art yeah. and our perceptions of mm. history with art. And, and propaganda and, and the yeah, use of it. And, yeah. and mm. it's it basically is about the power of cinema. It's Tarantino's mm most extreme, truest love letter to film as a medium. And Mm. I think that you kind of need to get where he's coming from with it to really appreciate it. Because it's so, so full of um, 
references to cinema and film and specific film references and the way that Tarantino's films always are but it's it's in a very deliberate way here you know it's and it's in it's not just oh I saw this shot in a film and I'm copying it it's you know yeah. Archie Hickox is a, a a film critic who goes undercover and uses his intricate knowledge of cinema to get away with going undercover and and learn about these mm. other cultures, um, and that, you know that's one of countless plot elements. That one of the main characters runs a cinema. I mean, fucking hell! At the end of the film, these characters literally change history and kill Hitler, sort of save the world to a point <laughs> through in a cinema. <laughs> yeah, by with film, literally with film, they use film, weaponized, literally film. To kill him. And I think that the ending, just to go back to your point about catharsis and, you know, the idea that Jews are getting, you know, getting to kill Hitler. If the film was interested purely in Shoshana and her sort of character journey, her emotional journey, first of all, she probably wouldn't die before she realises the... Um, end of her plan, which is to kill Hitler. But also, she doesn't even get to do that. Like, her plan is set into motion, but, you know, the Jewish-American guys burst in, and they're the ones that shoot up Hitler. Well, that's um, that's also a statement, isn't it, about the Americans turning up and claiming all the world? <laughs> well, yes. Um, and I, <laughs> after this beautifully intricate plan was put into place, and then they just burst They just the kick door. the door down and shoot everybody. Unless we yeah. forget the the incredibly meta, like, human centipede style stuff that's going on at the end, as the Nazis are sat watching a film where a Nazi soldier is gunning down all of these allied soldiers, just shooting people, and they're laughing and cheering, and then us in the real world are sat in the cinema watching those same Nazis be, you know, burnt alive in the cinema, and you're sort of meant to be cheering, and, and you know, it, it brings into question all sorts of um, things about, again, the nature of, of cathartic violence, and there's a lot going on there. I don't know, I think a lot of people just write Tarantino off, frankly, as, oh, he's just that, you know, guy who makes violent films and they're trendy. Mm, gratuitous. Yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah. And I mean, can we, can we talk about the finale? Because we, we mentioned it there, the fact that they actually kill Hitler. I think that's such a big aspect of this film that we kind of need to talk about it in a bit more detail. But um, Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, that was mind-blowing. Uh, when this film came out, there was never any hint that this was going to be revolutionist history on display it was well, yeah yeah there was a hint <laughs> directed by quentin tarantino on the poster is the hint yeah, but he's never <laughs> rewritten history in his films in this way no but there's an irreverence to his style that you know you wouldn't put it past him well i don't know i i just think it's not really something people did you see oh he's making a film it's set during the war the assumption for me is well we know how this story ends we know that the, yeah. they don't kill hitler we know it's a doomed mission well, yeah, if the if the aim of the of the group is that oh they're going to kill Hitler, we know that's not going to happen. So yeah, doing it is is really the kind of yeah, it's a great kicker, isn't it? It's just like ah, oh, well, I yeah. it it blew me away because it meant that you get the Hollywood happy ending, but it's the unexpected. It's not the obvious route to go, you know. It's it's a really clever thing, and then it makes you again question the nature of reality in cinema. 
and their relationship with it's, it's basically the film has its cake and eats it too that's what it does and yeah. It's, yeah i just think it's a remarkable decision and hearing tarantino t- is it a hollywood happy ending well i don't know if i to a point quite agree with that um i mean very, most of the main characters die there's really just brad pitt yeah. and bj novak left at yeah. the end and christoph waltz well that's it and they've, they've set because they set lander up as the the villain um, so he's the bad guy. So you're thinking, okay, they're the, he's the one that they're going to get. So they're obviously not going to get Hitler, Goebbels, Goering, all these, but they'll get him, and that's going to be our kind of mm. uh, our sense of a happy ending, even though the the top brass get away, because yeah. you can't rewrite history. So mm. it, it's mm. even it's not even setting up for that. It kind of comes as such a surprise that they actually mm. just go in there and start killing everyone. Uh, I, I remember hearing Tarantino talk about that decision and how he came to it. And he basically said, he, he says that when he writes his films, he doesn't plot them out and figure out the structure ahead of time like most people do, which is remarkable to say how well his films tend to be structured normally. Um, he kind of just starts writing and writes and writes, which is an interesting way to approach it. Uh, but I remember him talking about this and just saying that he got to a crossing in the road with regards to his writing. And then he thought, well, you know, my these characters didn't exist in real life, but if they did, then maybe they would have killed Hitler and maybe this would have happened this way. Mm. And he just carried on with what was right for the story. And, and mm. that's what yeah. he did. And I just think that that says so much about how he thinks as a creative person, how he isn't kind of constrained mm. in the way that a lot of people are. Um, a, a lot of people wouldn't have even considered that as an option when they were writing this film. So it's, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about um, Hitchcock for a second? Yeah. Because, uh, I, I mean, it, it's very striking, like, just how much, I think, if not every scene, then certainly every chapter is kind of built around a suspenseful mm. set piece or an exercise in tension in some way. Like, there's obviously the chapter one where Christoph Waltz is in the house and there are the Jewish family underneath the floorboards. Um, that When he arrives at the dinner, lunch later on and uh, Shoshana's there and they have a tense scene together. Uh, the scene in the tavern, obviously. My favourite bit is when Christoph Waltz is with Diane Kruger's character, mm-hmm. and he uh, has rumbled her, and he knows that she's that she was present at the tavern scene earlier on, and he has like a, a shoe of hers, and he like slips it onto her foot in this weird like horrific Cinderella moment. Yeah. It's a, a great scene, um, but because I just want to bring it up because I've heard Hitchcock, uh, Tarantino rather, talk about Hitchcock in interviews, and I know that he sort of is very or was rather before Inglorious Bastards very dismisses of very dismissive of Hitchcock and just said, oh, he was just oh, some really? old pervert who... Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, very much so. Huh. But I obviously, because so much of this film is suspenseful set pieces, because Rod Taylor is in the film as Winston Churchill and he was the male lead in The Birds, which Hitchcock obviously directed. And a Hitchcock film is featured in Inglourious Bastards yes. when there's the Samuel L. Jackson vignettes of talking about how... Uh, flammable and explosive, explosive. nitrate film is. Can't bring it on yes. a public transport. That is from Sabotage, which Hitchcock Sabotage. directed in, I think, 1935, 36, uh, some time around then. Um, I didn't like So the, I don't know uh, if Tarant- I didn't like that bit where you suddenly have to explain about film. It goes... Oh, really? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm with Alan. I, that, there's, there's about three points in this film where I feel... Tarantino, like I say, oversteps the mark, and they're basically yeah. every time Samuel L. Jackson begins to narrate, <laughs> it just feels so out of place. Well, and 
It's self-indulgent, for sure. Which, uh, those ones with Samuel L. Jackson, the quick cut of Goebbels, um, uh, fucking that woman. Oh, yeah. And there's maybe one or two others, but I, yeah. No, absolutely. That tavern scene feels like a very conscious, this is my take on a, a Hitchcock film. More than, I mean, most of the film yeah. does, but that, more than anything, feels like feels like he took the old saying about people sat, what is it, two people sat at a table and there's a bomb about to go off underneath them? Is What is it, Calvin? Yeah, it's, um, there's two people talking at a table, and if you just watch them talking for ten minutes and a bomb goes off, that's a surprise. If it's two people talking at a table for ten minutes and you show the audience at minute one that there is a bomb under, under the table, then that is suspense. Yeah. Quick Quick word about cast that yeah. we have mentioned already. I want but Brad Pitt. He's in that perfect Brad Pitt area where it's almost comedy, mm. and you're not quite sure. How, <laughs> like that's where Brad Pitt's at his best. Uh, and like we mentioned a few weeks, Tyler Durden is kind of in this yeah. area because he's is a slightly hyper real character. I mean, I would just say this is a comedy performance, honestly. I, I think it's the only <laughs> comedy performance, other than some of the other bastards, I guess. But I think this is a quite broad comedy performance, and everyone else in the film, for the most part, is playing it quite seriously. Um, mm-hmm. But it works somehow. Yeah, yeah, and he, yeah, it does. It just works somehow. I think it's yeah. No, I think all the Americans are played like that mm. in the film, uh, and and Mike Myers. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't think Mike Myers is doing a comedy role at all. It felt like <laughs> maybe it's just because it's Mike Myers doing that voice. It's... What should we drink to, sir? Well, um, down with Hitler, all the way down, sir. Very shagadelic, baby. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing his Austin Powers voice, but it's mm. it's done sincerely and seriously. I, I think it's a weird attempt at real acting yeah. from him. Genuinely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That didn't really work. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't mm. not work. It's just it's just weird because we know it's Mike Myers. You know, if that was just some guy, then I think that scene would play just the same. It's just kind of distracting that it's such a well-known mm. guy. And also, there's this is um, I, I assume this is deliberate uh, from Tarantino that the British officers, the the few that we see, are very. Uh, come on, then, old boy, stiff upper lip and all that cup oh, yeah. of tea. Like, very yeah. stereotype. Like, and I think, I'm assuming that's deliberate, or Tarantino has only met British people that he's seen in films. He's worked with Tim Roth enough to know that not all English people talk like that. So, yeah. It, it's, um, but, yeah, that that uh, character, Archie Hickox, is, um, of course, played by Michael Fassbender. Absolutely brilliant mm. performance. Um, was originally meant to be Simon Pegg. Oh really? But oh, he, he, I, he dropped out due to filming uh, conflicts, scheduling conflicts. I think he was making Paul. That's interesting. Does Simon Pegg speak German? Excuse me. Excuse me. Sorry. Um, do you speak English? No, I don't. Sorry. Oh. Um, my car's broken down, and I wondered if you could tell me where to find a garage. Yeah, well, you know that's that's wasted on me. I don't I don't understand what you're saying. You don't speak any English at all. Not a word. No. Ich speaking. But but I'll tell you who 
I think is one of the unsung heroes of this film. Um, Dan Kruger. Kruger. Oh, well, she is the other one. Yeah, that's not the one. I think she's really good. I think she's very good in a small role. Diane Kruger is, yeah, it really annoyed me actually when this film came out. Melanie Loren was the one getting award attention and Oscar nominations. Diane Kruger is phenomenal in this film. She deserved that attention Mm. instead of Melanie Loren. Yeah, a classic supporting role and really made everything of it. Yeah, she is Mm. brilliant in this film and... Um, I think it's a shame that she hasn't quite had the success out uh, post this film in Hollywood that Christoph Waltz had. She, you know, she did a few films, but none, none of them really. Um... Well, yeah, because before this, all I really knew her from well was National Treasure, and uh... if you're not a stake, you don't belong here. I'm just trying to hide from my ex-husband. Who, Baldy? Yes. Honey, stay as long as you like. Oh, thank you. Sort of lesser roles, I guess. I didn't really think of her as much of a dramatic actress or, or an actress with much character, I guess. But yeah, the, who I was going to mention is August Dale or Deal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, brings a lot to that scene. Well, he only comes mm. in halfway through it and then totally takes over. Yeah, he for me, he is the best thing in that scene. He is threatening. He, he's like, he's just, he's walking that line so well between... Does he know? Does he not know? Is he toying with them? Is he just mm. sort of biding his time? And mm. it, yeah, everything. Because you feel like he he genuinely isn't sure. He's questioning them. Yeah, but he doesn't yeah, want yeah. to offend them in case he. That's he's it. Wrong. But it, he plays it perfectly. You know he you know he knows something's not right. Oh man, I mean that scene just is perfect. It's one of the most perfectly constructed scenes in a film. Ever. And the guy who plays the, the like the the kid who he's just had a baby and he's the yeah. drunk one, but then he like even that's a really great performance yeah. because it goes through a mm. whole gamut of I'm just a drunk guy. Oh, I'm actually being quite threatening here. Oh shit, what's mm. going on? Everyone's dead. Yeah. He, he runs this whole thing, but plays it right at every level. Yeah, great. Daniel Daniel Bruhl, he's he's in it. He's 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 always good. The other um, big German name who. Hasn't quite had the same mainstream success again, but... Oh, he, he was in The Last Avengers, wasn't he, or one of them? He was in Civil War. Yeah, yeah. but... He's one of the, uh, he's more... the bad guy. He was the super, super bad... Super but he's villain, a very you know. generic, plain <laughs> villain that no one really cares about, you know? It's, I don't know. He's But then I guess he's not the most... Um, what's the word? Charismatic. Attractive. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think he is quite attractive, isn't he? Look, is that not a traditionally no. attractive, chiseled guy, is it not? Chiseled? Got it's no got a sort of puppy face. <laughs> I mean, he's just—he's perfectly cast, you know, in that part. Yeah, but... I think he's quite charismatic. I, I think he's um, maybe a bit bland. Like he's just maybe lacking a, a yeah. distinctness that separates him from the hundreds hmm. of charismatic Hemsworths and things that we have. But that's America. it. Like Dan- <laughs> Daniel Bruhl is one of those actors who the odd German film that makes it over in 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 this country where it's like, oh, this is, this stand out, this, you should watch this one. And you'll, Daniel Bruhl's in them all. <laughs> like he's, yeah. he's obviously like very big in that particular pond. And so th- what little influence I get of European cinema in my life, like mm. certain people jump out. And so no surprise to see them sort of finding a bit more mainstream success, a bit more mm. money going on. What about Eli Roth? Because I think he plays like, he's not an actor really, but I think he plays this just right. Uh, and it is there is the little comedy bits between them and uh, that whole group. He's he's in it. He's in the film. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, he's fine. I don't think there's anything particularly remarkable about what he does. Um, I know he beefed up for the role. I personally, I think, I think his inclusion's one of the weakest elements of the film. Honestly, I, I think, um, I think the way they make such a big thing out of the bear Jew. Maybe mm. he should have been someone who was noticeably quite a big, intimidating man. Because he isn't. Oh, totally. <laughs> Either a big, intimidating man physically, or just, like, a big star. Yeah. Like, if it was Adam Sandler, that would have been a, ooh, okay, moment. But when Eli Roth comes out, it's just <laughs> like, uh... Well, that's it. You you don't know if you're meant to think, oh, is that it? <laughs> I don't think you are meant to think, oh, is that it? I think you're meant to go, oh, my God, he's quite beefy. That's scary. And, um... That that's why it's called Inglorious Bastards with all the weird spelling. No one seems to like have clocked it, but it's it's how mm, it's because because Brad Pitt's character as he's written Inglorious Bastards on the baseball bat, and mm. he obviously can't spell because he's Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and he's obviously a bit he don't have the best spelling is kind of the impression you get. So he's written yeah. on his bat Inglorious Bastards spelt wrong. Oh, interesting. Oh, I, I, th- I, I just thought it was like a censorship thing. Like, they couldn't say bastards, so they had to misspell Inglorious I mean, that, as well. that might be part oh. of it as well, but... Um, I, 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 no, that was just me assuming. I've no uh, evidence of that. The other thing is, when the, when the title comes up in the opening credits, the name of the film's in this kind of scrawled, handwritten font, and it matches up hmm. with the, the way it's written ah. on the back. So Interesting. There you go. I'm, uh, Tarantino's made a big thing about how he'll never explain the weird spelling, and it's a weird little thing he had in his head. But I'm I'm like ninety five percent sure that's all it is. Hmm. <laughs> Do you think Aldo's meant to be that smart? Just a bit on a sidebar here, because he does say that he can speak Italian, and then later on, he certainly can't do the accent. Razzi, Gorlomi, lo pronuncio correctamente? Sì, correcto. <laughs> that is that is so funny though when he's doing the Italian with a say Tennessee accent. I think he isn't meant to be smart. I think that's the point. I think he's meant to be a bit simple, but he's also very you know he's, he's got street smarts. I suppose you'd say. Yeah, he's, he's a he's a he's a mm. career military guy, so he knows his way around. You know, yeah. that's it. He doesn't seem very yeah. well educated, but he's mm. you know, he he, mm. he does what he does very well. Yeah, I do love that scene where Christoph Waltz is saying like, and again. One more time. <laughs> just really love <laughs> It's a brilliant scene. Yeah. And who, what's the name of the guy again who gets it perfect? Dominic de Coco. Bravo. Bravo. <laughs> just, just on a complete um, tangent, I should have mentioned this before, but as two fellow British people, how do you signal a three with your hands? <laughs> Not like that. Because I do a German three. Apparently I do as well. Um, but the way they do it, I can't do it. It's like it's uncomfortable for me to get my thumb across to my little finger. Like, I can't really do it well. I do it that way. I do with three fingers. Really? A... That's weird. I do it with three fingers as opposed to with two fingers and a thumb. See, I do two oh, fingers see, I've, and I've always done two fingers and a thumb, and I, I never really thought about it. But also, I don't. I have no concept of that as a cultural difference between our two great nations. Well, this is what I wanted to get to, yeah. Is there any basis for this or is it some just bullshit Tarantino pulled out of his ass for the sake of the film because you know it doesn't matter Mm. really either way but I think as as a British person I found it incredibly uh, jarring in the film I was like wait what Mm. what What are you on about British yeah exactly 
Um, and I mean, at least mm. they're already suspicious of him. So, yeah. like, you know, it's like it's not just on that, but yeah, that's a bit of a flimsy thing. <laughs> but I think it plays in the. I think to the average American, that's very believable that there would be a British three, and we would be, you know, <laughs> so prim and proper with our how we do things and how we pronounce things and our etiquette that we uh, we would spot that, or Germans would likewise have the same thing and I, I I think it probably plays very well to an American audience. It's just that we happen to be too knowledgeable on this subject, so it doesn't quite work for us. Yeah. Uh so for me this is a ten out of ten and it's one of my all time favourite 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 films. And I will echo that ten out of ten. All time favourite yeah. Alright. <laughs> I must admit I'm feeling a bit more positive about it. Uh, now we've talked about it, we've sort of pulled out all these great bits. My response was, I enjoyed it, it was fine, a bit too long, as all these films I've been. Just left me cold, and so I gave it a seven. Ooh! Mm. <laughs> That's, ooh, I thought we were going to get an eight at least. But it's, I think seven's fair from Alan. Close. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's no Suicide Squad, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> So, Inglorious Bastards, uh, certainly the attitude at the time was, yeah, Tarantino's back on form, brilliant, can't wait to see what he does next. He announced a Western, finally, it's like the, the genre he's been, you know, most inspired by, I'd say, noticeably, up until this point, and he's finally going to do one. So I was so excited for Django Unchained. I I thought he'd reached a um a new place in his career. He'd like really grown as a filmmaker, and this was very much poised as the second of a spiritual trilogy, starting with Inglorious Bastards, in which Tarantino gives us sort of cathartic revenge films, looking at historical atrocity, um, starring Christoph Waltz in a substantial supporting role. Yeah, Django Unchained. Um, I I went into it with extremely high expectations, and it didn't meet them. <laughs> how, how do you guys mm. feel about it? Oddly enough, very similar to you again. And I, thing is, if I hadn't loved Inglorious Bastards so much, I would have just gone into this probably like I did with Inglorious Bastards, just sort of mm. like, well, it's a new Tarantino film, maybe I'll like it. I'd not have terribly high expectations of it. But yeah, I, I suppose came out sort of similar to you it's certainly not on par with that i enjoy it a lot but i um it's certainly not a favorite yeah it it just it really to me it felt like a step backwards for him as a filmmaker it felt like he'd got past mm. the self-indulgent let's just do a spoof movie attitude of kill bill and death proof and to me this is just another one of those it's it's another it's it's hey i've have you seen these old westerns well we're doing that <laughs> Here's me playing an Australian. <laughs> Alan? <laughs> <laughs> Generally speaking, I enjoyed it. Uh, but yeah, just w- having watched them again, yeah, it gets away with it. I don't know, I can't really sum it up in a in a, a nice, neat package. But generally enjoyed it. Some flaws, I guess. And I'll go into details as we go along. I think this one is, like, people... Some people criticise the length of Inglorious Bastards. I think that mm. film's very deliberately plotted. It, yeah, it's slow, but I'd call it a slow burner. Yeah, yeah. Which is not a bad mm, thing. Mm, yeah. Django Unchained just feels like they you need could to lose trim, half an hour. Like, yeah, half <laughs> an hour out of it. It just feels a bit flabby. And could. And could trim half an hour. It just feels flabby and mm. I was I was disappointed with Christoph Waltz as well, because he's 
All right. Well, he's phenomenal in it. You know, he's great, but he's basically the exact same performance again. Yeah. Well, it worked last time. Given that he's playing, you know, a really friendly, kind-hearted good guy. I don't know, it just... I Honestly, throughout the film, I was always waiting for his sinister underlying motivations to be revealed because I don't know if that's just because I you know think of him as the guy from Inglorious Bastards but I don't know there's something about his performance that doesn't quite ring no, I think sincere I think that's character as well the character because the character is just pure blooded like a good guy yeah even when he mm. kills someone it's for good reason there's only sort of sinister element of him that he is that he does kill people for a living but he mm. completely feels Within himself, he feels completely justified about who he kills and why. Yeah. So, as a character, it, it's justified. It's interesting because, yeah, you're waiting for, like, why is he so nice? Why is he being good to this person? Why is he, You're waiting for something to be revealed. Mm. I think that's just perhaps our cynicism. <laughs> Maybe, but I, I feel like there's got to be a way the film could have handled that. Like a scene with him and his wife before we're introduced to it. It's the fact that he's such a an enigma that comes out of nowhere. And he's he's, like, too friendly at the same time i think i think that's it i say this as someone who thinks that christoph waltz deserved that oscar that he won for django unchained and loves this character it's just compared to what we had in the previous film i was disappointed Mm. Mm. this kind of sums up my my feelings on the film it's a very little thing that i'm gonna pull it up on and complain about but it's sort of emblematic of a bigger problem i think inglorious bastards was a perfect example of Tarantino taking inspiration from other sources and making it work. Django Unchained just uses the theme from Django at the start. And that's is too far for me cuz I've seen Django. <laughs> I like Oh, really? Yeah, well it's not that obscure a film. When when he announced he was making Django mm-hmm. Unchained, um for, so for listeners Django was this pulpy western in the 60s. Um he was a kind of Man with no name knockoff, I suppose. But he's an infamous character because there were countless unofficial sequels put into production. Uh, Italian cinema at the time, the law meant that you could basically sell anything as a sequel to anything and just put it out as, oh, it's Star Wars 3, and it, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with it. So all these people made knockoff Django sequels, and, uh, like, various sources will tell you there's over a hundred of these things, but. I, I think that's exaggerating. I don't think there's a comprehensive list of over 100 Django films, but there's a lot of them. And so when Tarantino announced he was doing a Western and it was called Django Unchained, it was like, oh, he's like really going back to the, the Django well. He's making his own Django sequel. Great, that's that's pure Tarantino. And that's not really what this is, but he obviously just loved the theme tune to Django, which I love and already listen to like all the time. And it, I don't know, it's just... It'd be like if the Meg opened with the theme from Jaws. It's just it's just a <laughs> bit too far. It, it's... I don't know. Uh, so the cast... I mean, we've spoken about Christoph Waltz. We've got Jamie Foxx in the lead, but obviously Will Smith, I believe we've spoken about on this podcast, was who Tarantino wanted and was courting for a while. And I think Will Smith was a, a fool to um, not take this role. Why didn't he take it? Uh, He's a fool (laughs) Depending on who you ask um, He wasn't happy with the not very family friendly content in the film Oh, from Mr. Tarantino? What? Yeah, well it's Will Smith (laughs) though, isn't it? Will Smith didn't want to 
taint his family friendly image i think protecting his brand yeah. um mm. but also will smith spoken about how christoph waltz was like the lead of the film and django was just mm. kind of there I've got to be the lead. I'm Will Smith. Was kind of his attitude. So I, I think, uh, okay. see, I was gonna. What I didn't know that they said that, or that that's the theory. But what I was thinking is that the way Jamie Foxx plays it is really quite underplayed. He's mm. understated, and that is good. Playing off of Christoph Waltz, yeah. who's much more flamboyant. That char- those characters play well together because of that, and I think it works really well for Django because you get someone like Will Smith in there. He's got so much character, so much charm. How are you going to let that come through in that character? Because that character shouldn't have that. Yeah. Really. Or maybe by the end it starts to come out. But he's a beaten down, broken man at the beginning. You know, like that's yeah. That's what you've got to put across. And 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 a, and a man who's n- never been allowed to speak. Do you know what I mean? He's always you're not allowed to talk back or anything. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? So, uh, ta- Jamie Foxx plays it really well, I think. Yeah. But I I can't see Will Smith doing it like that. Yeah, because. What he says is true. Christoph Waltz steals the show and the scenes he's in. Even Leonardo DiCaprio steals, you know. Oh, yeah. I really like DiCaprio in this, mm. yeah. I really liked it. But that, that's why it's a great performance, Jamie Foxx, because it is mm. an unselfish yeah. uh, performance. It's yeah. like, I have to... I'm essentially a lead. I'm the titular character, but I have to let this one go. Yeah. He kind of gets his chance at the end, but... But yeah, DiCaprio really jumped out at me. Fantastic, I think. I mean, I do think DiCaprio is a fantastic actor. Oh, he is. This performance, far superior to The Revenant, for Christ's sake. <laughs> um, just as an example. I don't think I've ever seen him play a villain before. Mm. But he plays it with such relish. And he's just one of those people oh, yeah. who naturally falls into anything. Yeah. Like, he can do it. And I mm. think he brings something quite nice to this that you wouldn't get from uh, fucking Walton Goggins or something like that. Mm. Well, I think Walton Goggins is... Uh, Pretty great, too. That's not to slug off Walton Goggins too much. Do you know, apparently during um, filming, Leonardo DiCaprio like had to ask them to stop at one point because he was finding it so difficult to say the N-word. And Samuel L. Jackson basically came over and said, like, get your fucking shit together, man. People are, you know, <laughs> I give we, you we deal with this every day, you little <laughs> dickhead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, you're hearing the, the N-word too much. Oh, boo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, actually, one of my notes is that I can't tell if Christoph Waltz isn't a good enough actor to hide how uncomfortable he is saying that word, or if he's <laughs> such a good actor that he's instilled the character with a, a clear <laughs> lack of comfort saying that word. <laughs> is this the one that Spike Lee got really pissed off about, or was that Jackie Brown? Uh, probably both, knowing Spike Lee, but this yeah. this film generally was very heavily criticised for racial insensitivity, uh, which I suppose mm. we should touch upon, because... The, the, the... <laughs> yeah, yes, fellow white men. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm mixed race, right? Let's nip that in the bud. I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, well, can I, actually, can I jump in before you before you yeah. uh, say this? Because I don't know what the sort of general consensus was, but let me tell you what my kind of takeaway from it was. I want to see how it where it falls because I wanted to mention this anyway. Hmm. That I find this is and it's kind of in Inglorious Bastards as well, a revisionist history. Yeah, I, I do get the sense of this is a way this film allows you know white culture to erase some dirty memories. It's like, yeah, we know what really happened, but here's something that might have happened. You know, this is better. This is a nicer, happier ending, isn't it? Let's forget what really happened and the years of oppression and the horribleness that's still mm. going on. It, it feels like this is a 
like a, a a way of just sort of like skirting around it. I get what you're saying, but this film does not hide how horrendous like slavery was. It, there's some. This is probably the most violent, or maybe not the most. It's probably not as violent as Kill Bill, but it's more affecting. The violence in this film is the most unpleasant violence in any Tarantino film I've ever seen, personally. And it's because it's so... It's it's the horrors of slavery depicted, and I don't think this film shies away from that. Um, I don't mm. think... I mean, you watch something like 12 Years a Slave, you get a much better impression of that in terms of horrors. I but don't agree. I don't, I, I don't at all. I, I watched 12 Years a Slave, and it felt like, yeah, prestige drama. Oh, he is getting whipped, and I guess that wouldn't be nice. But then this, it's a guy being torn apart by dogs. It's men being made to beat each other to the death. It, it's Yeah, but the you all... Yeah, those, those elements, those areas are really uh, concentrated upon. But, I mean... Django kills more people in this film than anyone else. Yeah, uh, in in massive sort of very Tarantino-y film bloodbaths. It's yeah, it's more the whole thing. It's like yes, the guy, he wins at the end and he walks away like rides off into the into the moonlight. Uh, yes, great, everything's good in history, right? Let's not let's forget that you know Jamie Fox in his neighborhood when he was growing probably not now because he's a millionaire, but in his neighborhood when he was growing up probably got hassled by the police. Although it isn't. I think Jamie Foxx is like a classically trained cello, <laughs> cellist, isn't he? I don't know if he was that from the streets, I'm not sure, but you, you get my point. But also, let's not forget as well, Django himself's probably going to like die, walk off quickly. down the street and get <laughs> shot by a racist like the second the camera stops rolling. It's not, it's kind of, yeah. But also, the, my secondary point is that, and this also plays into Inglorious Bastard a little bit, there's a sense of like, if you just fought back, you could have won. Yeah. Why didn't you do this? You know, that's it. It's kind of, and I know that's not its intent, but, oh, it doesn't feel like that's its intent, but you do kind of walk away from going, eh. It just seems to be suggesting if you just, why didn't you just rise up and shoot them? Because the, because it's not showing the reality of when pe- of people rose up and were immediately murdered mm. um, with no chance of any uh, revenge or anything like that. I don't disagree with that. What I will say is I think Inglorious Bastards is not guilty of that quite as much in that I think Inglorious Bastards, as I've said, is very much a film about cinema and about our relationship with art. Yeah. And I, this film does not have that subtext. This film does not have that uh, streak of um, deconstructing art and our relationship to it and its relationship to history. So this film is just kind of... Um, a revenge film and cathartic revenge without any greater meaning to it, unless I've missed the meaning. Well, I didn't really, I didn't walk away from Inglorious Bastards thinking that particularly, but from Django Unchained, I did get that sense. And I can't say that I'm like, oh, and it, this is a terrible piece of revisionist history and why yeah. apologies. Like, I don't think it is, but I think it's definitely, particularly in the culture in which we live today, it's mm. that's the sort of impression I start to get from it, and we're leading mm. towards that. I don't think it's intended as that, really. Well, I think there's there's definitely some truth to what you've said. Um, and, I mean, one of the big arguments that people have against it is that it's not Tarantino's story to tell as a white American man, you know. It, I believe that's, yeah, Spike Lee's point. Yeah. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, yeah well... I, I think there's valid points on both sides, you know. I, I, I think it, it is so much a mashup of genres and a, a, a love letter to old films he's seen as well and you know it, it's certainly not 
there's certainly no malice behind this film. Like, even if you take issue with it, you you can't deny its heart's in the right place. Um, mm. And I think that's worth keeping in mind because you know it's not like there's some subtle racism creeping in like you might get in a Michael Bay film. It's um... mm. <laughs> I think it's dangerous territory to suggest that only certain people can tell certain stories. And that was Tarantino's response, I believe, of sort of like, you know what, I'm going to write the characters that I want to write, and um, the characters write themselves after a certain point, and if they're going to use certain words and do certain things, then that's, you know, that's the character. That's, you know, you can't tell me that I can only write, like, you know, middle-aged white men. Uh, That's it. I mean, if you want, if if I want to see a film about what it was like growing up black in America in the 80s, then yeah, I would would rely on Spike Lee to tell that story rather than Quentin Mm. Tarantino. But Spike Lee wasn't a slave, um, and he and he may be more in tune with that that part of that of culture. Uh, mm. But there's no there's no pleasing Spike Lee. Like he was criticizing mm. Black Panther for being racist. He, he's just and it's like, well, what have you done lately? You you did a fucking Kickstarter to finance your uh, black vampire movie. You made a huge song and dance about how it wasn't going to be a remake of Blackula. Oh, it's a remake <laughs> of Ganja and Hess, the far more obscure black exploitation vampire film. Oh, great! So you like? Oh, he's a knobhead. Like, yeah, he's he's made some remarkably good films in his uh, career. Like, I'm not taking away from uh, that, but he's. I think I've only ever seen Inside Man. Which is probably his whitest film, <laughs> so I don't know what that says. But I've not seen a huge amount of them. But Do the Right Thing is is a fantastic piece of work. Um, mm. On on the topic of the M word, have you seen that amazing uh, interview Samuel L. Jackson did about no. this film? What? Oh my no. god, it's, it's it's I'll have to drop the clip in here. It's so funny. But there's been a lot of controversy surrounding the usage of uh, of the N word in this movie, and, and no, of... nobody, none. The word would be... Oh, I don't want to say it. Why not? I don't like to say it. Have you ever said it? No, sir. Try it. I don't like to say it. Try it! Really? Seriously? We're not going to have this conversation unless you say it. You want to move on to another question? Okay. Awesome. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't like... I don't want to say oh, it. Come on! Can, will you say it? No, fuck no. <laughs> That's not the same thing. Why do you want me to They're say gonna it? They're going to bleep it when you say it on, the, know, on your show. Say it! I can't say it. If I say it, we, we, this question it won't make air. Okay, forget it. Okay, I'll skip it. Sorry, guys. It was a good question. No, it wasn't. It was a great question. It wasn't a great question if you can't say the word. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> this film, to me, just feels like Tarantino and Autopilot, which, after Inglorious Bastards, was such a letdown. But it's not a, it's not a bad film. It's a really fun oh, romp. Oh, no. Um, yeah. Although it is far too long and meandering. Yeah. And I think the characters are quite poorly fleshed out for the most part. I think they're quite mm. two-dimensional, mostly. Yeah, that's. I think you're right there. I think it is generally very two-dimensional. And I found the, the ending very disappointing. First of all, they have this big sort of gun battle thing in the house, and it feels like, okay, this is the big climactic battle. And then there's like a separate bit where they take him, they're going to take him to the mine, and he kills him and comes back. So that felt like a bit of like, oh, okay, we're just doing the same thing again. Just a second mm. ending. This could have, we could have just done this the first time. Also, just the very deliberate, over the top, super duper happy ending. Ending mm. where it's like, not only is everything good and I've won, but I'm going to put on these sunglasses and sort of not look at this explosion. 
um, and then like not and then stand looking really cool and then get on my horse and get it to do some horse ballet for no apparent reason it was just like this kind of like everything is super duper perfect happy ending ending that would just I just didn't know why you have to go that far it felt like yeah. it was deliberately taking the piss out of films that do that <laughs> I like it when he shoots that lady and she goes like flying <laughs> she just goes uh, you like the way she dies boy <laughs> apparently Tarantino considered re-editing the film into a four hour miniseries using 90 minutes of cut material I think that would work better yeah. for the pacing I can see this in chapters like that, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It'd be too long, though. Um, just before we move on, we haven't really touched on Samuel L. Jackson's performance in this film. Mm. Mm, very interesting character, that. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah, he... I mean, I think it's one of the best performances um, he's ever given, actually. I'd, I'd, you know, probably put it in a top ten Samuel L. Jackson roles. Uh, yeah? Yeah, great performance. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I... I I still really like Django Unchained, but I, I, as much as I was let down by it, uh, I give it an 8 out of 10. Uh, same here, yeah, 8 out of 10. Uh, I give it an 8 out of 10. Oh. Well, total agreement. <laughs> um, thing. So, yeah, Samuel L. Jackson was pretty much the lead of his next film, his last film for the, at the time of recording. I don't know about you guys. I, I think it's very clear that this... Because this did begin life as a sequel to Django Unchained. And I think it's very clear that Samuel L. Jackson's basically playing an older version of Django in all but name here. Uh, in The Hateful Eight, which is what we're now talking about. Well, I haven't actually seen this film. So uh, I'm just going to be, yeah, uh, listening to you guys talk about it. The only scene I've seen is um, a clip on YouTube where Kurt Russell destroys an incredibly expensive antique <laughs> guitar or something. Um, that's all I really know about it. Um, um, Jennifer Jason Lee is, yeah, genuinely, like, <laughs> a very yeah. thrown by it. That, yeah. yeah. Do you know about that, Alan? No, no. I mean, I remember the scene, and it did seem like a uh, weird scene, <laughs> the, the, her reaction. They loaned a um, priceless antique guitar <laughs> from a, a an antique guitar museum. From the 1870s, uh, I believe. Uh, yeah, 1870. Yeah. Uh. Apparently, Kurt Russell hadn't been informed that um, they were supposed to uh, swap it out for a prop guitar before he smashed it to pieces, and he just carried on doing the scene and just smashed it up, and that's why Jennifer Jason Lee reacts the way she does. Um, <laughs> and Tarantino just did a little wry smile in the corner. I mean, that sounds like total bollocks to me, but... Oh, the museum's, like, furious. Like, they, def- they did smash <laughs> it up, but whether or not... Whether or not uh, Tarantino just went, hey, Kurt Russell, just smash that guitar. We'll get it on film and say it was an accident. But they, they told the museum that like an accident on set broke it, and then they watched the film, and it's like, oh, no, that's him smashing the guitar, right? Well, we're never loaning out our things ever again. But this, that, that is not a scene that required a vintage guitar. It looked like a guitar. Yeah, no. I mean, I'm sure you can tell the difference if you're an expert, but I'm sure you can also get a copy made. <laughs> well, they had copies on set. They had. They had. So why is she? Why is she not playing one? Oh, I didn't fucking nonsense. <laughs> so Tarantino started writing a sequel to Django Unchained called Django in White Hell, which was to be a novel. He is apparently quite into the idea of continuing 
the story of Django, uh, just as like the, this series of adventures with him. For whatever reason, he started to like the idea of this being a film, and then it basically became clear that all the characters had to be unpleasant, reprehensible people, and you kind of couldn't know the backstory. You had to kind of be kept guessing, which was why you just turned it into a standalone film rather than it being mm-hmm. a sequel. But I personally, I think it really does... I think it's very clear that it began life as a sequel to that film when you watch it. Uh, um, I can believe that, but I don't think that character's Django. No, like he's, Django. but I yeah, I can see the DNA. of like He feels like a grizzled, older Django to me. So yeah, basically, my I'd never seen this film before. I just watched it earlier today. Okay, and I hadn't seen it before. It's way too long, and it's like what two hours forty odd minutes. Depends what cut you watch. It, it, uh, one of the cuts is three hours seven minutes. Over three hours, yeah. I didn't watch that one. Um, the first half, like the first hour and a half, I really loved. It was just people talking. It was exactly what Tarantino does. Wet. That it's what Tarantino does best. Great character expressed through dialogue. Characters talking to each other. They're all trapped together. They're all in the stagecoach or they're all trapped in this little mm. shack. Exactly what I like. When the plot kicked in, it really sort of let it down <laughs> for me. It's weirdly... Um, the biggest influence is weirdly John Carpenter's The Thing on this film. To say that it's mm. quite a muted, low-key western. And I, 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 I... You know, it's not just that it comes across in watching it, but I believe he actually screened the thing for the entire cast and crew before they began production because it was such a big influence on it. How did Kurt um, Russell feel about that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, I mean, what, I, what I've been saying throughout uh, about Tarantino flittering back and forth between silly, irreverent spoof movies and real films, this is one of his real films. Mm. This is like a proper film. Yeah. And uh the first time I watched this, it felt like a bit of a a lesser film from Tarantino. Kind of not bad by any means, but you just kind of expect more from him. Rewatching it, I think this is I don't know, like I, I really appreciated it a lot more again on the second viewing, and I, I think it's just such a remarkably well crafted bit of work. It is very slow, but again, it's a real slow burner. It's deliberately paced. I think the plot is very good, actually. I, I think I like when the plot kicks in. I think it's it does a great job of um, keeping you guessing, playing with the form. There's there's one very Tarantino-y moment where he kicks in as a narrator and like <laughs> awful, absolutely unforgivable. That oh no, I absolutely loved absolutely unforgivable. No, 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 terrible. I, I and and it. that is the moment when it, the film shifted for me to like okay. This is not going to be any good. What's wrong with that? Well, no, what? no, it's not any good. What's wrong with that? <sighs> you know what's wrong with it, so... <laughs> well, I don't. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because it completely destroys the tone of the film that's set up. It doesn't fit. It's not consistent. It's awful. I, I don't know. I, I'm I, lazy. No, I, I I, don't mind it. Basically, Calvin, there's a, it's like a very straightforward film. Right. Um, but then, mm. very late in the game, Tarantino starts talking and basically says like hey so um 
whilst this was happening, this character does this, and he's he's narrating it, but it's him. So that's his cameo in this film, is him narrating. And it's very conscious that, like, you'll recognise his voice and know it's him. Mm. But I quite like that, because he's such a meta-playing-with-the-form guy. It's it's like Alfred Hitchcock, like, presenting one of his films and, and playing up the fact that he is... No, it's like, it's like Alfred Hitchcock doing a cameo in his films, but the cameo is he turns to the camera and goes, oh, by the way, there's a bomb under the table. <laughs> I didn't see that coming, <laughs> well, did no, you? If- if you if you didn't know who Tarantino was and you were just watching this film, you you might think that narrator's got a bit of an odd voice for a narrator, but you wouldn't think of anything beyond that. No, you'd think exactly what I thought, which was this is awful. He's completely destroyed what he's done with the film so far. Why is he doing this? He Why is it to. awful? Other like other than the fact that you can make the argument it's a self indulgent bit of acting, like cameo from him. That he's... I don't care that it's Tarantino. If someone else had done the words, it okay, wouldn't make so, any difference. So why is that awful then? Like basically, what happens is this film runs so far, and then there's a big twist. The narrator kicks in to say, "Okay, like you know, several hours earlier." No, it doesn't. What happens is it goes well. Actually, forty five seconds earlier. That's what it does. It basically shows you the same scene again from a different angle so that you see yeah. that someone's done something, a specific action. But that's because we're seeing it through the eyes of one character the first time, and then we're seeing this different perspective that offers new information. But it's completely not in tone with what we've seen. So it's not in tone with the film that is being made. It, it, mm-hmm. it diverts the film into a different direction. But that's sort of the beginning of the end for me, because after that, we start to go into what the the plot is everything that's been setting up to this point it starts all falling apart basically all the plot elements start to come apart what did you um, think was being set up that didn't continue uh when i say fall apart i mean in a in the sense that it's supposed to in the terms of everything we've set up starts to unwind and you know mm. um and we start to reveal certain things as that happens as it all begins to unravel and we start to expose certain elements i don't know i just didn't care like i was i was interested in the characters but then all these character interactions and these very delicate little things that were going on between them was kind of devolved into, oh, those guys want to kill those guys. Mm. And that was it. And I just didn't... I, I, and I was so much less engaged for the second half of the film because I didn't really care. And the characters that I were interested in had been killed or, or whatever. And yeah, and then you got this big... You got you get this sort of reveal where we do go back to the morning, we see these characters setting up. So we so now we know, oh, those were the bad guys all along. And... And it was just like, oh, right, yeah, great. I don't care. It wasn't like, there was a suspense element, but when it was revealed, I didn't care. I disagree. I I think it's very good. I think it plays out about as well as it does at the start. It's, um, I I can understand how you'd find the, the way in which it, you know, decides to present you with that information jarring, but, um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the the way the plot develops other than that i but that, but the the problem my problem with it is that i wasn't engaged with it for whatever reason i'm not saying it was badly sort of made i think the 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 story was not engaging enough for me in which i had been very engaged in the beginning i think it's a very tense thriller of that you know cut from the cloth of the thing and um you know, i've never really liked the thing either and it's something i should like well, I don't know. You say that, but you don't seem. You say you love all these films where there's like a bad guy that's got to be rooted out and a load of people trapped in a room. But you don't. You don't seem to actually like any of them. <laughs> no, the first ninety minutes of this film was great. In fact, the first ninety minutes of this film, I was like, "Oh my god, this is great! I, this is this is going to be my favorite Tarantino film after like Reservoir Dogs, maybe Pulp Fiction. This is this is going to be way up there." 
And by the end, I was just like, uh, whatever. I mean, I, I like I say, I found a, I found much stronger appreciation for it on the second watch, including that narration, because I found it a bit weird and jarring the first time, and I, I came to really quite appreciate it on this rewatch. But I don't know. I think this is a great film. I think it really is just, yeah, it's Tarantino making a real film again, and it, it just kind of sticks the landing for me. I, I, it plays out great. The cast is fantastic. Great performances. Again, Tarantino seems to be growing and maturing as a filmmaker. He's the first time he's ever let someone score one of his films. Ennio Morricone wrote um, original music for this. Yeah, I didn't particularly like the music either. I mean, it's not it's not Ennio Morricone's best work, but it's very it evokes. Well, yeah, the... I thought that was interesting that it actually let got an original score, and I, I didn't do it for me. It didn't work. Well, I mean, it, it evokes a very uh, cold sense of dread, and I, I think this film deserves credit for making the blizzards so formidable. It's rare that I'll watch a film and think that cold weather is genuinely threatening, <laughs> whereas in this film you really get the sense of unbearable cold and the fact these people are trapped in this place together against their best, you know, wishes and what have you. It's missing some charm in this cast. I think this is a great cast. Well, I think Kurt Russell is great. I think Samuel Jackson is great. I think Samuel L. Jackson is on form, like, again, one of his best performances to date. He is fantastic. Kurt Russell is great in it, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll give you those two. And fair enough, those are the two major characters. I think Walton Goggins is pretty good. I like him. <sighs> He's he's all right. I, I, uh, I think Tim Roth is excellent. Oh, are you kidding me? Tim Roth is awful. <laughs> What is no. he doing? He's awful. It's, this is like He's four great. rooms, Tim Roth. No, it's not at all. Oh, come on. Right, Tim Roth is... It, at the start, you think, what is he doing? Because at the start, he's being very um, British and putting on airs. And it's a bit like, oh, come on. We know that's not how you talk. Um, and it feels very insincere. As, as part of the reveal, it, it turns out he is putting on airs. And that isn't how he talks. And he just basically becomes Tim Roth. I, I think he's great in this. I think he's he's got a, a real sense of um, kind of mania behind him, really. He's quite menacing in his own way. I didn't get I think, any of that. I think Michael Madsen's typical Michael Madsen, which isn't yeah, a bad exactly. Thing. He's not, yeah, nothing, nothing doing there. Bruce Dern's great. Everyone's just so no, he's not. He's just exactly so so. That's how I describe most of the cast. Just so so, not particularly doing anything wrong. I don't think it's bad acting. I think Tim Roth's quite a bad actor actually. I've decided now. Channing Tatum's an odd uh, inclusion. And if you're gonna have a reveal where Channing Tatum's in it and he's like been hidden the whole time, then don't put his name at the beginning of the credits. Uh, and Jennifer Jason Lee is pretty good. I think I like Jennifer Jason Lee generally. I think she was miscast. Yeah, yeah I, I don't I, think I'll he was good. I actually think, in terms of the second half, Jennifer Jason Lee really comes alive in that second half and yeah, gets a lot more yeah, to do, absolutely. and she works there. In the first half, when she's just being this sort of foul mouth, she's just chipping in every now and it didn't yeah. work for me. Yeah, but then I'll the... go with that. I think this is a great example of Tarantino being surprisingly thoughtful and mature, but um, I heard him talk about this film and make like the process of writing it. What we end up doing with Daisy, i.e. hanging her, mm. was always my conception that, you know, uh, they would fulfill John Ruth's destiny by hanging her, which is her sentence, per se. However, as I got to that last chapter, 
in the first draft, I questioned, is that misogynistic? Do I know Daisy enough to kill her that way? I don't know if I know Daisy enough to kill her that way. Uh, I don't know if my own biases as a male maybe are, are, are playing into this. Um, um, so then I did a second draft. And in that second draft, not getting tricky about it, but I wrote it from Daisy's point of view. Daisy was the audience figure in it. And, and I didn't really change her personality. Uh, but she was the audience figure. And it was my attempt to really get to know her. Now, in that version, Mannix ended up dying. And it was Daisy and Warren that had the moment at the very end. They're both going to die, but, uh, but uh, uh, they were the, the last survivors of it. And when I finished the second draft, I felt I really knew Daisy. I knew who she was. I had no uh, mysteries about her. I felt really good. And then I knew I could kill her. <laughs> then I knew I could hang her from the highest beam in the haberdashery and feel okay about it. But I needed to go through that. Fair enough. I think the fact that he's even considering things on that level is very surprising. He's just not someone I would have thought of who'd be... I don't know, that's very first wave stuff like, oh, should I treat a woman like this? Because you're automatically thinking of this as a woman. You're not thinking of who is this person and what have they done? Do they deserve this? You think this is a woman. What has she done? Does she deserve this? Uh... <laughs> well, I would give it an 8 out of 10. I gave it a 7. That first half was a straight up 9, easy for me. Mm. They, this film, if it had, had a, an ending that that paid off from that beginning for me... It could have been a 10 out of 10, I think. This is a film that could easily jump up to a 9 next time I rewatch it, honestly, based on the way I feel about it now and how well it held up for me on the repeat. I think it's very much uh, in Tarantino's top half of his work, if I was to go through it like this. Um, do, do you want to hear my rankings of all his films now we're at the end? Oh, I do. I've been keeping track. All right. <laughs> right, this is everything he's ever done, right? From <laughs> worst to best. Four Rooms, Bottom of the Barrel. <laughs> Have you seen that, Carla? We didn't no, that. that's the anthology film, isn't it? Oh my god, it's appalling. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, then I would put My Best Friend's Birthday, the sort of half-completed... I mean, was it a student film? Whatever it was he made before he started making real films. I put that above Four Rooms. Then Reservoir Dogs, which you won't be happy with, Alan. Then Death Proof. Then Jackie Brown. Then True Romance. Then the Kill Bills, Volume Two, then Volume One, mm. then Django Unchained, and then so this is top five: Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, From Dusk Till Dawn, Pulp Fiction, Inglorious Bastards. It's mm. good. One of the top five isn't even his film. That's good. <laughs> Fair. You're telling me there was no point where he went over to Rodriguez and was like, "I think you should do it like this." So. Currently, he is working on his ninth film. I think he said he's going to make ten, so we're near the end of his career if he stays true to that. I'm not convinced he will, but mm. he's currently working on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm. which comes out next year. It is very Tarantino-esque to just create an arbitrary kind of, oh, I'm going to make this many films for no reason. Yeah. It only works if you don't count that one as two films and that one other <laughs> one I did. Don't yeah, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is what he's working on now. Um, it's about uh, L.A., 
Hollywood, I guess, in this in uh, 1969. So um, the Helter Skelter, Charles Manson stuff is uh, certainly seems to be quite a big part of the film, um, mm-hmm. if not a backdrop for the story it's going to tell. It it was announced as a Ma- Charles Manson film, and I don't think that's going to be the case from what I can gather. But but the cast he's assembled is um, pretty phenomenal. Mm. Do you know who's in it, Alan? Yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Yeah. 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 And? Other people. Al Pacino. <laughs> um, Kurt Russell. Michael Madsen. Uh, probably, I don't know. Oh, he is? Yeah, Michael <laughs> Madsen's in it, yeah. Margot Robbie. Burt Reynolds, Tim Roth. Damian Lewis. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've looked it up. Margot Robbie's playing Sharon Tate, so, yeah, it's yeah. definitely to do with... <laughs> and Squeaky yeah, Frome, yeah. yeah. Dakota Fanning playing Squeaky Frome, yeah. So she was one of the Manson family. But so, um, uh, yeah. for a guy who loves making films about film and a very inside Hollywood films as well, for the most part, it's surprising he's never straight up made a film about Hollywood before. I think the mm. closest he's come was writing True Romance. Mm. Um so it's going to be interesting to see how he tackles that because I don't know how many classic film references you'll get in a film set in Hollywood in the 60s, but I'm sure he'll find a way. I'm looking forward to it. Who's producing it? Apart from uh, Lawrence Bender, I guess. But who's the... Because obviously it's not the Weinsteins, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a point. Um, It is David Heyman. The Harry Potter guy. David Heyman and Shannon McIntosh. Yeah, it is the Harry Potter guy, apparently. Pre- the interesting here, the executive producer is Georgia Cassandes, who is, like on the the last film I just watched, which was The Hateful Eight, it was like produced by Harvey, Bob Weinstein, Georgia Cassandes. So they were the three uh, the of the Weinstein company. So is Georgia Cassandes part of Weinstein's company and they've just taken the Weinstein names off mm. for the sake of... I don't think the Weinstein company exists anymore, does it? Well, exactly, but... Actually, Georgia Cassandes is not in the Hateful Eight. Is the only one she's on, so I, I'm guessing that's not she's not a Miramax person particularly. Have we got oh Luke Perry's in it? That's weird. Uh, <laughs> you, have we got anything else to say about this, or can we touch on his Star Trek film? <laughs> oh, is that really happening? It's officially announced. Well, I'm I'm not convinced by this. <laughs> Everyone says it's officially happening. I I don't quite believe it'll ever get made, but. Um, and is he writing it? No, because he's not a writer who can fit stand or already a, uh, standardized world, is he? He's going to make it his own. As a director, I would say the same, probably. Like I, I would not buy it at all if it was going to be the tenth and final film by Tarantino. Because he's not writing it, I think he, if he was to make it, I think he'll say that one doesn't count. That's not my tenth film. Hmm. It just it's an, it's like the ones he's written that don't count. Apparently, I mean, basically, what happened was he was on a chat show, I think a radio show, and he said that he had an idea for a Star Trek film. They asked him if there was any like franchise he'd like to work on. I think he said he had an idea for a Star Trek film, but obviously that had never happened. Hmm. The actual answer to the question is, I would be more inclined to do a, a Star Trek kind of thing rather than Star Wars. And I you like and Star Wars both, and buddy. everything. But you know, but I uh So what uh, would you do with a Star Trek movie then? Um let's workshop this right now. I'm ready. <laughs> well frankly to tell you the truth, I mean one of the things that I've I've I actually I haven't considered it considered it like I'm going to do it. All right. But I did 
web spin a little bit about the idea. Like, I, I'm definitely a fan of the original series, and I'm definitely, um, in particularly, a fan of um, William Shatner. At some point, it was like I think it was like a year or two afterwards that clip like got resurfaced for some reason, and like people started making a big thing out of it. Uh, got the attention of J.J. Abrams, who invited him to come in and pitch the idea to uh, Bad Robot and Paramount. Hmm. Apparently they really liked it, uh, and they set up a writer's room to write it for him. So it's his story, but huh. they're going to actually write it, and he's going to direct it. And it, it's all like hmm. official at this point, although obviously there's a lot of time for it to um, fall apart. But they're they're making Star Trek four. This is going to be Star Trek Five. They're making Star Trek Four just kind of independently at the minute. Simon Pegg said like the other day, actually, he's basically it's going to be this one. Then they'll start work on the next one. Then that basically lets Tarantino finish up on um, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then turn his attention to this. Hmm. So I mean, it does seem to be figured out and happening, but hmm. it I, it just seems so bizarre. Oh, and it's going to be R rated. That was the other thing. Oh. Apparently that's a big sticking point, and they've agreed to it. Hmm. So, really, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because I mean, what I will say is Tarantino grew up watching old TV, and it's part of one of his biggest influences. Mm. So, in a way, it's kind of very true for him to make this if he does. Well, you know that he wants he wanted to pitch an idea for a Bond film once. Have you ever touched really? on that? He really wanted to do Casino Royale after Dine of the Day came out in the early 2000s. Um, but mm. he said he'd only do it with Pierce Brosnan and then the producers decided to... I don't think they ever invited him in to pitch or anything, but he huh. was making a bit of a, a thing about wanting to do it. Um, I, I'll, I'll very quickly, actually, I'll touch on some sequels to the three films we've mentioned that never got made and probably never will, but were kind of touched on. Oh, okay. um, so obviously Django Unchained turned into, um, the sequel there turned into The Hateful Eight. That's your sequel there. I think Tarantino said various things about potentially writing books and doing a mini series and stuff following on from Django at some point, but I don't think that'll ever happen. Inglorious Bastards... Do you know about Killer Crow? Killer Crow? No, what's that? Yeah. This is the potential Tarantino sequel I want more than anything in the world. No. Um, apparently there was originally a whole plot strand about a platoon of black troops who were going to be court-martialed, but then escaped to... Um, they escape in France and London, apparently. I don't know how that works. But it's about them trying to get to Switzerland, where they'll be, um, you know, safe from court-martial, and along the way they were going to encounter the bastards. Shortly after the film came out, he spoke about this and how he wouldn't mind making it as a standalone sequel, and he was working on fleshing it out. Don't think it's ever going to happen. Hmm. But, you know, I'd be very intrigued to see it if it ever happens. Uh, And the other one is he has spoken about his desire to make a 1930s gangster movie at some point. Hmm. Actually, I can I can imagine that. Yeah. yeah, that was before he settled on Django Unchained. It was kind of I'm either going to do a 30s gangster film or a western was basically what he was saying. And apparently, he's mentioned the potential for Hans Lander to show up Ooh. if he ever makes it because set in the 30s. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> what is it in Germany? <laughs> well, I guess so. Well, if it's going to be a gangster film in the 30s, it's going to be in like Chicago or whatever. Well, I don't know. He made a western set in the south. Yeah. 
So maybe he'd make a 1930s gangster movie set in Germany. Like uh, M. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past Tarantino. Oh, I'd love to see a remake of M with Christoph Waltz. <laughs> Steve Buscemi is the Peter Laurie role, sure. <laughs> but yeah, so they're the things that never got made. But yes, uh, Star Trek? Should we do our own Tarantino Star Trek? Is that what we want? Yeah. I mean, is that a good idea? Yeah. Alright, well... Star Trek, Star Trek. So it's the original guys. You got the Spock in there. I want to. I want to see. Oh, but Tarantino wouldn't do that. I was going to say I want to see the original crew meet the Borg. I doubt Tarantino's that into the next generation. Yeah, he feels like modern. an old generation guy. So definitely there'll be a green woman who he fucks. Yeah, with her feet out, <laughs> barefoot, barefooted green woman. I I still haven't expanded my Star Trek knowledge beyond what we uh, covered in episode uh, I think five or six of this show so Samuel L. Jackson's going to have to get in there somewhere <laughs> so maybe if we can figure out how he gets into the Star Trek universe we can work backwards from that how would Tarantino get himself in there then? I think his cameo is going to be quite a boring one, I bet he's just going to be in a uniform and... Nah, he'd be an alien he'd be an alien. They'll go to a space brothel and he'll be <laughs> In like the background with a green woman with a feet in his face. He'd have a big <laughs> no. He'd have a big. He'd have a Klingon head on that big forehead of his. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What else have we got? What other Tarantino sequel things can we do? You got any ideas? I do just like the idea of more Hans Lander. Honestly, well, yeah, I... sort of cheap and self indulgent as it might yeah. be. I'd be fine for it just to pick up well either directly as. Inglorious Bastards ends, mm. or, or a few years down the line, and see this like alternate yeah, history know. and what uh, happened. What really? if he's, what if he's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood <laughs> as an old man trying oh. to hide in America? He's he's like gone into hiding. All Tarantino films are connected, and he wears a bandana all the time. Oh, like Spock. But you know that um, Charles Manson had a swastika tattooed on his forehead. <gasps> oh my god. It's all fitting together. Well. Has, has he announced who's playing Manson in this film? <laughs> I don't think he has, actually. <gasps> oh my god. <laughs> this actually... This this could actually be... Knowing him, <laughs> knowing the state of cinema at the minute, with, like, Split and Glass and Unbreakable, <laughs> like, genuinely, this could be where he's going with this. I can't see. I don't think he has mentioned. I don't think Charles Manson's on the casting list, which seems odd no, to have not. not have him mentioned in a film well, surrounding. The impression I got was it was going to be one of these films that doesn't even show him. And yeah. It's kind of about the fallout of him as this like man without mm. dwelling on him personally. Yeah. I yeah. Let's. I I think our sequel is it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but it's the alternate version. Mm. <laughs> That includes Hans Lander as as uh, Charles Manson. In that case, we need we need to we need to draw in some other Tarantino characters then. Right. Well, let's get. How do we get um, Harvey Keitel in here? <laughs> Harvey Keitel. He voices the army general in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, yeah, very recognizable yeah. voice. So, I mean, we could just have that same character in it, but hmm. I want the I want the wolf in it. Set in the sixties, so who who would even be alive from Tarantino's films at this point? He would actually, wouldn't he? Harvey Keitel's uh, the wolf guy would be like yeah. Back in ninety six, now Harvey Keitel was in Mean Streets. Well, that was about sixty nine. And he he lives in um, L A, doesn't he? California, certainly. Yeah, Harvey Keitel born in nineteen thirty nine. All right, let's get the wolf in there somewhere. But a young wolf who's like not quite honed his skills yet. 
and he learns everything he knows from Christoph Waltz. <laughs> yeah, you could have a young Jules from Pulp Fiction in here. What was the connection to the producer in True Romance? Oh, yes! Yeah! Lee Donny Donowitz. Which one is that? Eli Roth? So, one of the little connections, basically, is, yeah, Eli Roth, who plays Sergeant Donny Donowitz, is the... I think the grandfather, if not just the no, father, be father of... It is father, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it must be, because yeah. that film is set in 94 or whatever. Um, in, in True Romance, Saul Rubinek plays a character called Lee Donowitz, who's this really crass um, movie producer. Uh, what's the name of the guy he's based on, Alan? Joel Silver. That's it, he's, he's ah. doing a Joel Silver impression. Yes. But he's the son of uh, Sergeant Donny Donowitz from Inglorious Bastards, apparently. So there you go, you've got Sergeant Donny Donowitz who's gone to LA and become a film producer and his young son who he's trying to Has get... Has he in. gone to LA to track down Charles Manson, Hans Lander, because <laughs> he doesn't appreciate the fact that he he survived the bomb. Oh wait, yeah, I just realised he's died in the film. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well he must have sired a child who's in LA, so he's got family. But, but who... Who has taken him on, this young man, he's taken him on as a kind of a father figure because he feels for him. It's Brad Pitt. Uh, Aldo Rain looks out for his men's kids and he comes in, and like Christopher Walken, he comes into his this kid's life and goes, oh, your, your dad left this watch. <laughs> and I've had it up my ass. I wasn't in a prison war camp, I just put it there to keep it going. <laughs> So that I mean, what is that? Is there a story there? That's what we need to figure out. Uh, stuntman Mike could be there as a stuntman. Oh, he will. Yeah, good point. Yeah, stuntman Mike. Uh, those those um, the the father and son policemen. They're in everything. They just <laughs> pop up. Doesn't even make sense that they're like <laughs> transported back thirty years because they they just transcend space and time. <laughs> those characters. Yeah. Uh, right. So Tarantino. I feel like we need to do something to cap this all off now, because we've been doing it for three weeks. Calvin, do your best Tarantino impression. Well, I uh, I, I, I take issue with what Spike Lee... What was that? No, that's not... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that was, but... That sounded like one of your um, silver screen leading ladies in later life. <laughs> what? She's been drinking too much. Well, <laughs> Betty I Davis. Yeah, I don't appreciate being talked to like that by such a rude young man. What a dumb. Calvin, when are you, when are you coming back? Well, I, I, th- I think I'll next be back for uh, the James Bond episode. You have a, a stunning array of guest stars lined up. Uh, so, um, yeah. That was Quentin Tarantino season. I hope you enjoyed that. We certainly had a good time re-watching all of those films. Genuinely, I, I really enjoyed these three. And another big thank you to our guests, Dan Straw, Connor Murray, and the one, the only, Calvin Michael Dyson. If you've enjoyed this Quentin Tarantino season, then make sure you are, of course, liking us on the Facebook page facebook.com forward slash diminishing returns podcast and uh, the Twitter following us on the Twitter at dim returns pod and of course you know if you're not if you're somehow not subscribed to us on iTunes then like do that um, 
tell people, tell everyone to listen to the show. Thank you. We'll be back next week as ever. See you bye.